The Athletic. 232 betting breaches, an eight-month ban, unable to even train with his Brentford teammates until September. Ivan Tony's story has brought football and its uncomfortable relationship with gambling back into sharp focus again this week. I'm Mark Chapman. This is The Athletic Football Podcast. Tony steps. So the breaking news in the last 15 minutes, Ivan Tony has been suspended from all football and football-related activity with immediate effect. Yes, Ivan did something wrong. He got punished for it, he got uh, the, the sanction. How can you let him not be involved in football for the first four months? How, what do you gain from that? If you want to rehabilitate people, you give them education or you do something. So now it's like, okay, this is a sanction, leave it to yourself, die or survive. Uh, so with us for this one, Brentford correspondent Jay Harris and former Premier League defender, England international defender, current Sierra Leone captain uh, Stephen Colker. Let's let's just get to the details of the story first, because Jay, I, I still think there are a lot of football fans out there who have just heard he's been banned and don't actually understand exactly what has gone on. So take your time <laughs> what go through everything that has happened that has led to him breaking rule e8 uh yeah this could take a little bit of time but um but it's important it's important basically this entire process started back in may last year when the fa first got in contact with ivan tony to say that they wanted to speak to him um they interviewed him for the first time last july he then supplied them with some bank statements in September and October for two accounts. Um, he was then interviewed by the FA again in October, and then it emerged that he had a third bank account. Sorry, I should have said, when they initially interviewed him as well, he had to hand over his phone, so they were checking phone messages and things like that. Then obviously the FA have gone away, collected all this information, gone for his phone, gone for his bank records, as I said. And then in November, they charged him with 232 breaches of their betting rules. Um, so the FA's betting rules basically restrict any players from England and that applies to um, like coaches as well from betting on results, transfers, managers getting hired and fired. It also covers passing on inside information. I'm sure lots of people listening might be um, aware of what happened with Kieran Trippier a couple of years ago when he basically told his friends or kind of insinuated to his friends that he was going to be moving to Atletico Madrid from Tottenham Hotspur. They put money on that and then he got in trouble. So the FA hit Tony with 232 charges and then in December they add an additional 30 and then in February there's an update where Tony admits 190 breaches of the FA's betting rules but he disputes 72. So when you think about the fact Tony was only officially suspended a couple of weeks ago this process was kind of ramping up back in February so he still played another 13 games after he first admitted um, to all those breaches. In March, the FA withdraw 30 charges, um, but they say they're going to continue pursuing Tony for the remaining 42. And then basically, Tony decides to admit to those 42 charges. And um, in the written reasons, which I'm sure we'll get onto, he basically says, I don't really agree with these charges, but I just want this process over and done with as quickly as possible now. And if this speeds up the process, then I'll do it. And then in May, he has this disciplinary hearing. And again, I'm sure we'll get on to some of the things that were said in that disciplinary hearing shortly. 
And then the independent regulatory commission, they weigh up everything that was said and then they hit him with this this eight month ban. And so he won't even be able to train with Brentford until September and he won't actually be able to play football again until January next year. So I hope I've covered the main yeah. points there because it's a it's a complicated situation. You, you have, and we'll, we'll bring Stephen in in just a moment, and we'll talk about the punishment as well in just a moment. But I'm sure I'm not the only one thinking, how, how does the FA find out about this? I mean, how, how who, who sort of makes them aware? How does it come to their attention? It's a good question, and not a lot about that process has really been revealed throughout this investigation and previous investigations. But what should be said is that the FA have betting integrity investigators. So what I'm assuming is that they're essentially tasked with, you know, finding out these pieces of information, whether it's given to them by clubs who are saying, you know, we're a little bit concerned about this player's behavior, whether someone's giving them tip-offs. Mark, if I can just if I can yeah. just step in there, actually. Um, I mean, making assumptions here because I, I don't know the exact details of this specific case, but having been involved in, in something similar myself, um, it was the betting companies who, who informed DFA. Very similar to the Trippier situation, really, where my brother had told people that I was going to transfer to Southampton and yours might have been 10 to 1 at the time. And they've got to put a couple of grand on it. And um, yeah, they, they contacted the FA to say there's no way anyone would have would have predicted that Steve was going to sign for Southampton when I was like, odds on to go West Brom at the time. We, we ought to give a bit of background here as well. And we'll come on to this a, a little bit later. You've spoken to Jay for the Athletic in the past about your own struggles with gambling and the whole gambling culture throughout the game. And I will say several times during this podcast, we are we do understand that we are sponsored by a gambling company on this podcast. So we, we get that maybe we are part of the problem that we are going to talk about a little bit later on, or it at least highlights football's relationship with gambling. But the FA and the, and the gambling companies, I'm guessing, Stephen, going back to the point, work quite closely together. I mean, the, the FA go round clubs trying to talk to players about the dangers, do they? Not in my experience. Um, right. No, not, not, not in my experience. Um, I think that we're now stepping into an era where people are being made, made more aware, far more aware of, of, of the pit holes and, and the dangers that, that gambling can bring. Um, certainly going back, I was on 15 years ago when I was in a youth team, absolutely nothing was, was said and nothing's been said since. So, in the 15 years as a professional, I've never once been told by the FA or the PFA that, that gambling causes harm. Um, it sort of goes underneath the sky. So when it's saying, bet this, bet that, bet this, it's it's stop when the fun stops. For a lot of us, unfortunately, um, we're unable to stop when the fun stops. I mean, the fun stopped for me many, many, many years ago. Um, and it was the addiction that, that kept me in it. So it is difficult with all the sponsorship. I, I do accept that. Um, I know, obviously, they've recently announced that they're going to move the the main promotion of main sponsorship on the shirt to the side of the shirt. But for me, what does that really change? Did they come around? Because Ivan Tony did reference in his interviews that the FA did go, when he was at Peterborough, they did go to Peterborough to make players aware of the rules on betting. That, that may be the case. I, I said, I've, I've never experienced it. No, that didn't happen either for you. From the couple of conversations I had with people, not just Stephen, I you know, chatted to Frank Nuble and a few others as well. It's definitely something that happens more regularly now. But obviously, you know, Stephen's in his 30s. I think 10, 15 years ago, that was never happening. And it's more something that's been introduced in the last five years or so. And we get companies like Epic Risk Management, who I spoke to for the piece, who Scott Davies represents them. He's a former footballer. He played for Oxford United. He played for Reading. 
struggled with a gambling addiction. He's been eight years clean now, but he will go into clubs, sit down. They'll explain the rules and he'll also talk about his experiences and try to basically discourage players from following the same path that he went in. So it's definitely, there's more awareness around it now. But I think in the past, football's probably been very guilty of just ignoring the issue. When you were, when you were first heard of this story, Stephen, made aware of it, what was your initial reaction? I don't know, Ivan, but my first thought was he's, he's got an issue. And the reason why I say that is because anyone who would risk, I mean, let's just look at the logical side of it, right? So if you're a logical thinking man, you would not think I'm going to put all, all of my career, all of my money at stake for returns of, of money that you already have. So um, something that I slightly went through uh, to escape the pressure, to escape all of just the sort of demons in my head, I would go and gamble and that would sort of be my escape. And the higher the stakes, the higher the risk, the more thrilling it was. So I, I, I guess, as I said, I'm, I'm making assumptions here, but I would assume from from my experience of speaking to thousands of like-minded individuals who, who, who suffer with a, a compulsive gambling, is the higher the risk, the more more engaged we are. Um, so my first thought was that would that's clearly playing some part in this situation. Um, and the other the other part I would look at is a, is, a, is a form of self sabotage. So a lot of what what he's done in terms of his behaviour is is it's, it's a form of self-sabotage, which unfortunately a lot of people who suffer with addiction do, uh, whether it be alcoholism, um, drug addiction, gambling, many, many other forms of addiction. It, it seems to, we all seem to have that, that sort of core drive to self-sabotage. And I, I believe those things, those days have all played parts in, um, in, in, in this whole story. Um, and I sort of think we have the whole story. It, it's made the headlines because it's been better on football, right? But I read yesterday prior to coming on here this morning that, he he said he stopped betting on football, but he's betting on other sports. And it's like for me, I just I just worry about that. I just think like yeah. like that has this kind of just changing from cocaine to ecstasy. You know, um, the issue will will still very much be there. Uh, as Stephen says, Joe, we don't we don't know everything yet. And he, and he has tweeted, hasn't he, Ivan Tony? I'll speak soon with no filter. Do you do you have any sense of what he's going to talk about? Um, what's Ivan Tony going to say? I'd expect. He's going to come out and share his side of events. Um, obviously, lots of people have been quick to judge and react. And I'm expecting that he wants to, the opportunity to, to tell the entire world his story. Um, Tony definitely came out at one stage and said that himself and his legal team um, were not particularly happy about the fact that they felt like there had been leaks during the process. So maybe he kind of wants to comment on that. Maybe he wants to comment on the fairness of the investigation. Maybe he wants to come out and talk about the fact that he's actually got an issue. Um, who knows? But I'm sure we'll find out sooner rather than later. I, I spoke to I had this maybe I, I was talking to a mate earlier today who who supports another Premier League team, and he said, um, "You know, oh God, I'd love to have signed Ivan Tony this summer, but it but it isn't it isn't going to happen." And he and he then said, I, "I feel sorry for him, but why on earth did he bet against his own team?" And I kind of think. But before we go down the the whole issues and and what Stephen talked about, you know, going from cocaine to ecstasy and the actual issues that are there, the public sympathy in the main is there to a certain extent, I think, because of those issues that Stephen mentioned. But it falls down a bit on the betting against your own team. Would you agree, Jay? Yeah, so I probably should have broken down a little bit the actual bets that um, are explained in the written reasons. So there's 232 charges in total and 126 were basically bets on matches in competitions Tony's team were either playing in or eligible to play in. 
And then there were 50 of those 126 bets. Bear with me with the numbers, people. Um, that the FA considered the most serious. And some of that involved Tony betting on his team to win, betting on himself to score, betting on his own team to lose. Um, it definitely makes people view the case slightly differently because these rules, these FA rules are in place to kind of protect the sport's integrity. So any suggestion that a player is betting against his own team just feels as if it's tarnishing the game's image a little bit. Um, but then it's also important context that I think Tony placed 13 bets on seven different matches on his team to lose. 11 of those bets um, were on Newcastle to lose when he was out on loan at Wigan Athletic and Scunthorpe. And then the other two bets were related to a Wigan Athletic versus Aston Villa game where he wasn't involved in the squad. So that mitigates it slightly, um, but it's still not a good look to be betting against your own team. No, that's the, that's the, it, it does mitigate it, Stephen, doesn't it? And that either he wasn't at the club at the time because he was on loan or he wasn't playing. But it's a, te- it's a terrible look. It is, but I mean, I, I, again, I, I couldn't, I can really sympathise with him because I know that the pain of sort of feeling rejected by your parent club, the pain of being rejected from from the manager from the starting eleven, even the subs bench, and you're sort of in the stand. That sort of pain and anger and frustration. Do you do you think actually what those bets are? Those bets are a basically well, I'll say it basically fuck you. I would say I'll go to my own experience, but I, I've been there, and 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 that's yeah. that's I, I've done it. You know, I, I, I mentioned on on a podcast recently. I I did that many 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 years ago. And it was involved in Newcastle, Newcastle, Tottenham. I'm, I'm up in the stands, and it's like there's no I got no control over it. There's no. It's kind of this uh, bizarre belief that as players we can control the outcome of a game. Like just I mean, there's there's 21 other players on the pitch at any given time. You've got the referee, the two linesmen, the fourth official, and now VAR, right? There's so many things that go into any game. Like, we cannot control it. And even less so when we're not even on the pitch. Even less so. So, look at horse racing. The jockeys are involved all the time. And even then, you know, there, there is, you know, obviously as, amongst us gamblers, there's no there's no rich punter because, you know, we're, we're compulsive and we continue to bet and continue to bet until all the money's gone. So, for me, it's, it was probably uh, driven by emotion. Um, I said I would, I would take the logic out of it because there is clearly no logic. Um, and I would say, again, when you're talking about these bets, it's like, I don't know where he's at today. I don't know whether any of these bets involve Brentford in the Premier League. But I would I, I, I would like to think, that obviously, when he got to a certain level, it was like, well, I'll stop all of that. And maybe just not being able to stop. Maybe that's the case. Maybe he's doing it in the lower leagues when, let's face it, no one really cares. It's not a story. It's not the FA not going to ban you eight months. It's not all of that. And then as they sort of move up levels, is it then like, wow, now I need to stop, but maybe I can't. So I should have said the 232 breaches span a four-year period between February 2017 and January 2021. So during that time, Tony was originally at Newcastle. Then he spent some time out on loans, Comfort Wigan, as I mentioned. Then he moves to Peterborough and then he moves to Brentford for that kind of final six, seven months. But the 13 bets he placed on his teams to lose are between August 2017 and March 2018. So if you do the maths, Tony is 21 years old. Um, and as Stephen just mentioned, he got Tony got his big move from Northampton to Newcastle in the Premier League. And then he basically just, I think he made two substitute appearances for Newcastle and was never seen or heard of ever again. So I think that is important context to realise that this was a young player who thought he'd made it in the big time and then all of a sudden he's kind of been brought crashing back down to reality where he goes on loan to Wigan and I I don't have the exact stats off the top of my head. 
I don't think he was particularly prolific while he was out on loan at Wigan. I don't think he had the, the greatest time out on the pitch. He probably would have been away from his friends and family. So there's an element of this was a young, vulnerable footballer who made one mistake and then it quickly spiralled into, into a, a, unfortunately, a negative pattern. How do you both view the punishment? Which the harsh part, to me, I think, seems the no football activity at all, which, which takes them out of any training and they want they want to implement that abroad as well. So I don't think that means he, he wouldn't be able to go anywhere else for six months. When we, when we are talking about the mental health issues here, Stephen, look, I, I get, you know, there has to be some kind of punishment. But if you actually take training, fitness, anything out of it as well, He's vulnerable, isn't he? That, that word is, is, the, is the word that I would use very much to describe someone in his situation. Extremely vulnerable, um, most probably most probably fragile, feeling a little fragile right now. Um, I'd imagine he walks into Tesco's to pick up some, some his weekly shop of you know, whatever. He's got people looking at him, questioning him. If he tries to go to the park, he's got the same thing. So right now, he's, he's one of the most recognisable faces in, in the UK, right? So he's got that to deal with alongside being at home having to to now find different ways to train whether that's going to the gym or finding a personal trainer um, it's a very difficult time for him to be alone i can't understand that part of the punishment i can't understand it um i think the banned from playing is understandable isn't he banned from playing is under because there has to be a punishment i suppose i i do understand that absolutely i understand that too um as i like was just just sort of alluding to there like we have our consequences right so our behavior has consequences and the, and the fa have to have to set an example, right? I, I can I can understand that side of it. I, I, there's there's no arguments there whatsoever. Um, however, the extent of of the of the punishment for me is a little extreme, as you mentioned there, being away from the club. Why? Um, I mean, personally, that should be a club's decision. If the club feel that he's maybe impacting the squad, if the club feel that he'd be better at home, if the club feel that um, you know, he needs therapy or he needs to go to rehab, whatever. That that should be a decision between him, the coach, and you know, where is it charge Brentford? It shouldn't be a decision of the FA. Uh, I feel very strongly about that. I, I just can't understand why isolating someone in any way, shape, or form is going to help them. I would like to see that punishment explained and also put into context because I know there's a lot of other punishments that have gone on that have been nowhere near as severe. So, mm. um, consequences, yes, I, I believe we will have to face them in life, but you know, he's, he's messed up and, I, and I'm sure he knows that. Um, and with that come, comes the consequences. But for me, they're, they're a bit extreme and also strange. What would have been quite powerful in this situation is if part of Tony's punishment is for him to, you know, not only be put on an educational course where he um, sits down with somebody and kind of explains his experiences. And of course, it is mentioned in the written reasons that he will now be going through um, some therapy sessions, some counselling sessions. But if he then went into clubs and was kind of very open about his story and trying to explain to the next generation of players, you know, don't make the same mistakes as I did. I think that would be a better look for the whole of football. But also, I was obviously at the game on Sunday when Brentford beat Manchester City. Ivan Tony was sat in the director's box. And you had this really strange moment at the end of the game. And there's a photo doing the rounds on social media. And if you guys haven't seen it, I'll send it to you afterwards. And if anybody's listening has not seen it, I encourage you to look it up. Brentford have just finished ninth in the Premier League. Um, their club captain Pontus Janssen's leaving after four years. Thomas Frank is doing a speech on the pitch. Pontus Janssen does a speech on the pitch. They do a lap of honour. And Tony was stood in the tunnel because he couldn't go out on the pitch. 
And that just felt a little bit wrong. After an incredible yeah. season where he's been called up for England for the first time, he scored 20 goals. As I said, of course, there needs to be a punishment. But to not even be allowed to kind of, you know, wave goodbye to the fans because you're not going to play in front of them for eight months, I think just jars with me a little bit. And then in terms of football-related activity, it's so vague. You know, Tony's out with a hamstring injury at the moment. Is he allowed to go to the training ground for rehab? From what I understand, I think he is. But if you actually look up football-related activity, there's no guidelines, there's no rules. It's all a little bit vague. I think Brentford pretty much have to ask for advice on almost a case-by-case basis. Oh, can we send someone to go and do gym work with Ivan Tony? Or is he going to have to hire his own PT go down to the local gym and do it, which I think Stephen just mentioned. It just seems all a little bit bizarre, if I'm honest. And again, I get that he needed a punishment, but the whole ban from football-related activity and old ban from going and being allowed to train until September, it doesn't seem very well thought out. It doesn't seem very conducive. Yes, there needs to be a punishment, but actually what this individual needs, because he has been diagnosed with a gambling addiction, is some sort of rehabilitation. And I don't think that FA's punishment really addressed that. I have spoken with him. Um, I don't know if that's allowed, by the way, but if it, if it isn't, then they can ban me and not add to his. Uh, look, the ban is the ban. It is what it is. I think he recognised and accepted uh, the punishment. What bothers me is we've got to look after people and, you know, he's injured at the moment. What does he do about getting fit? How do we give him some structure over the next few months that... He can develop himself or be a better person at the end of it or have experiences that he might not experience. So I don't like the idea that we just leave somebody that they're not allowed to be a part of the football community. I don't think that's how we should work. I don't think that's how the best rehabilitation programs would work. And when he comes back, if he plays well, then we'll, we'll pick him. So... Um, It won't have any bearing, but I think he'll have additional motivation through what he's experiencing, and I think he's a resilient guy. In his favour, he's got an amazing club manager and actually an amazing international international manager as well. I mean, Gareth Southgate's press conference last week was the first part of it. It was dominated by him talking about Ivan Toney and talking to him. And actually, he made the point, I don't even know whether I'm allowed to be talking to him, but I don't care kind of thing. He does have some very good understanding people, managers around him. Yeah, and as you've just said, not only did Southgate come out and say he didn't know what he was allowed to do, but Thomas Frank didn't didn't, didn't know what he could do either. So you've got a situation where his two managers don't know how they're supposed to approach him. And when you just kind of take a step back and say that out loud, that kind of just sums up a little bit of the ridiculous nature of the um, of the punishment itself. But as you said, Tony's been supported by Brentford throughout the whole process. Thomas Frank is someone who, I know, Mark, you've spoken to him before. I'm not too sure if you have, Stephen, but he is a very down-to-earth manager. Um, Lots of players who have worked with him describe him as a friend, someone you can kind of talk to. I've had, you know, people say that Thomas Thomas Frank and Ivan Tony have a really special relationship. So I've got no doubt that Brentford will kind of do everything they can to support him throughout this process, and Thomas Frank in particular will as well. Um, But not every player... Has a, has a Thomas Frank in their corner, has a Brentford in their corner, which brings us on to the project that you are launching this summer, Stephen, which is behind the white lines to try and support players struggling with an addiction who don't have a support network. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll firstly just just touch on there on on, on Gareth Southgate. You know, um, I, I know him personally, and like, what what a beautiful human being. You know, like, what an amazing amazing man and incredible incredible man to to, to be leading to be leading England. Um, just just the, I think for me the example he sets um, is great, and it's it's about the player. It's it's not about oh this that no no. It's about the player. It's about him as a human being and, and takes care. For me, that's. That's that's amazing, and have, to have the support of Thomas Frank as well is great. So, just want to touch on those points there because those mm. those two managers for me uh, deserve credit, you know, for being more than just man- they're, they're 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 people and they're human beings. So so that's great. I I want to see more of that in the game. Um, and that doesn't ha- it doesn't half highlight actually the the amount of luck that can play a part in your career, in your journey, with your issues. You know, without going back over what you've been through, Stephen, to a certain extent, but if Gareth Southgate had been your club manager 10 years ago, you may that may have been very different for you. I mean, that's it, isn't it? I mean, there's a massive part of luck in all of this. Always. Um, I mean, this, this, it's, quite a, it's actually quite a parallel, which I probably didn't realise until I've sort of had Jay explain it today, the exact, the exact sort of situation of, of Ivan Tony. But there, there is a parallel where I, I then spent six months on my own training and um that was during a period where sort of football had turned its back on me rightly so I, I think the consequences as we mentioned I, I i deserved a lot of those consequences i was i was deep deep in addiction and um i couldn't find a way out so i kind of i needed those six months but during those six months um thankfully i, I found a way to survive and found my way through it but that wouldn't be the case for everybody i i had good people around me and um that leads on to why, you know, you asked me when you go back behind the white lines, you know, for me, that leads on to, to my why. You know, if you ask me, what's your purpose? What's your, you know, why, why this, why this company? Why this idea? Um, is that, is that reason for me? I, I just, at the age of 25, 26, I, I was completely lost. I had no identity. I was outside of football. Nobody would give me a chance. When you're in that situation, nobody picks up the phone. Hardly anyone returns a text message. It's an extremely lonely place to be. And I just felt that there's, there's no support for players in that moment. Um, a big part of what I do today is my focus is on 18 to 21 year olds. Um, I also cater a little bit for the 16. It's it's a hard bracket to get into because of the safeguards and all the rules that come around it. But um, ideal world, I'd go from 16 to 35, but I have to start bit by bit. So so 18 to 21, I focus on supporting players with aftercare. So players who are released from professional academies who have no idea what's their next step. We offer that support for them. We offer the support in terms of emotional support. We offer the support in terms of football, providing them with a platform to go out and play against other other teams and, and keep yourself in the shop window. And lastly, which 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 probably shouldn't come last, but but uh, but it is, it is a great addition to our to our companies. We're giving people options, real options, rather than just sell. We're sorry to see you go. All the best. We're giving people real options, whether that whether that's a route to America, whether that's you know we're we're working alongside the universities where they're offering free scholarships to these players. There's options there for these boys. So it isn't just about football because um, without putting words into Ivan Tony's mouth, I'd be really interested to, to interview him myself or have a conversation with him myself just about what now? You know, what now? What does the next eight months look like for you? Because um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of a lot of question marks in his head. What does it look like away from football, not being able to be on the pitch, as, as Jay said there? Um, what does it look like? Uh, and I found it very lonely and I know other people do as well. I've been interviewed a lot of people over the last six to 12 months um I, i'm not alone in this experience so so for me for me it's so important to have like-minded relatable people having these conversations because if you send someone into a club who with all due respect is 60 65 years of age wearing a suit uh from that west bank telling you about the dangers of of, of, of gambling the dangers of, of financial you know loopholes and stuff like that 
okay, they're giving the message, but how relatable is that message for 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 a guy who's 17, 18, sat there thinking with his mates, what's this guy on today? It's difficult, right? Whereas if you get a Craig Bellamy who's recently spoken about being bankrupt or you get an Ivan talking about the gambit or myself with my experiences, I feel it's far more engaging for the boys um, and, and therefore far more powerful. What is football's relationship with gambling for you? Is it toxic? I would say it's toxic. I mean, I just I just look at it and go like, they, they want the money. doesn't matter which way we dress it up. They want the money that the, the sponsorship brings, right? That's that's ultimately, yeah, football is a business. Again, it's, 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 it's a business that, that is a sport that's loved by many, loved by millions and millions and millions all around the world. But ultimately, it's a business. For those people at the very top who own these clubs, it's a business. And um, they see, obviously, the gambling sponsorship as, as, a, as a great form of income. Um, I see it as, as a way to, to damage and affect a lot of people's lives. Um, because not some, just somebody, footballers. Not just footballers. My God, not just footballers. You've got all the people back home who, if you are just start with a little, start with a little accumulator, starts with a pound, two pounds. You lose that and you're in chase mode. You know, I've been ch- I've been chasing my whole life, you know, to get that first pound back. I lost 15. And, and I wish I stopped at £2 or £5 or £10. I didn't, you know. And uh, I know that's the case for many others as well. So uh, for me, it is toxic. It's ugly. Um, I would love to see a different message. Um, I believe there's still enough money in the game. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it, it looks that way. You know, certainly from the outside, it looks that way. There's 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 so much TV money. There's, there's so many other opportunities. But for me, I would like to see real change and, and the real change for me comes from uh, communication you know uh, communication inside the clubs so let's look at what drives that person to go gamble we can look at moving sponsorship from the middle to the left but but what about what drives that player like an Ivan Tony to take such huge risks what is it what's what's driving that and uh, often for me um, a lack of communication uh, a lack of emotional intelligence within the clubs doesn't help that but if you're a player and you are struggling in the dressing room, it's probably one of the hardest environments, I would imagine, to admit that you're struggling, is it? Absolutely. Oh, I say to all the young players that I speak to now, like it's not a case of just speaking to anyone. You know, a lot of have campaigns saying, Are you okay? Speak to someone. Simple change of language, are you okay to how are you feeling? You know, are you okay, yeah, fine. How are you feeling? People have to stop and think and answer that. Um I've not been asked how am I feeling from from a manager for for, for a good while. So um, I definitely think that that there's there's a lack of emotional intelligence within the game, and I feel that um, if that changes or, or when that changes, I'd like to think we would see one better performances, two better relationships with with managers and players within the game, and three just a healthier a healthier environment because you won't fear that I'm going to be dropped if I open up. When I was in Turkey for four years, I had players in League One and League Two and the Championship reaching out to me, and they didn't know me. Right, so it's not like they had a personal relationship reaching out to me, saying that they're struggling with gambling uh, and alcohol as well. That's, that's that's something separate for today. But struggling with gambling, why are they reaching out to me and not to their manager or not to someone they have inside the club? Um, there's a reason for that, and it's because of the lack of trust. They feel that if they do that, it will be used against them. Is this a um, is this an English football? I mean, you mentioned your experiences in in Turkey. Look, we we often get told. Oh, you know, there'll be a game of cards on the team bus, or you might be having a, you know, a wager on a game of FIFA in a hotel room before an away game or whatever. Um, I have no idea whether that gambling culture that feels like it was a massive thing in, say, the 90s, you know, and lots of card games on buses is still prevalent in English football. And if it is, is that the kind of, would that be, you know, would you have a game of cards on a bus in Turkey or, or gamble over FIFA? I don't know. 
well, yeah, I never saw any of it. So there was no cards at the back of the bus, so there was no game on the football. So, so that that was my experience in the four years I was there. Someone else in Italy or Spain might say something different, but I mentioned to Jay in in in, in the article that gambling at the back of the bus that for those boys who who just enjoy having a little bet and they risk uh, or stake a hundred pounds or two hundred pounds, whatever they could afford, right? It is what it is. You know, it passes a few hours. It's a way to spend time to have fun. For those guys, I don't see that as an issue. For me, it's more about the ones who hide it. You know, those, those who, I mean, I would never gamble the back of the bus, but I would, I'm one of the biggest gamblers yeah. I know. You know, I'd risk everything. I'd stake my house, you know, but I wouldn't gamble the back of the bus because there was no thrill involved. There was no risk involved for me betting, uh, you know, £10 a hand or lose 100 There was no thrill. Um, and that's why I took the risk and took more risk. And as I say, going back to, to Ivan, that's why I look at it and go, for me, there's obviously something deeper there. For someone to take such huge risks, there's obviously something driving him to that. Just to um, on the emotional intelligence point that, that Stephen made a minute ago, there's a couple of things that immediately spring to mind. One of them is that Brentford psychologist, this man called Michael Colford, I've spoken to him a couple of times, he used to work in the world of horse racing. But he did something which I think is quite clever at Brentford, where he has a bench at the training ground that he sits on and he just invites people to say, come and sit with me for a chat. It can be about anything. It can be about something that you're going through negatively or you can just have a catch up with me because we get on quite well. And the whole point of it being a bench is that you're not going into an office and you're trying to take away, I guess, almost the seriousness of that conversation. And then Michael Crawford also takes his dog to the training ground and will go on laps of the training ground. And I've seen Thomas Frank go on walks with him around the training ground. But again, it's a case of come have a walk with me with my dog and we'll talk about anything. And then if we get into the serious stuff, and I thought that was just a really clever way to try and get people and players to open up to him in a slightly different way. And also, and also, Jay, sorry to interrupt on that. It's public. Is that as as in as in public within the training ground, so everybody can see it. So there isn't that. So it normalizes it, doesn't it? Yeah. It doesn't yeah. become, as you say, it doesn't become sitting outside somebody's office in a kind of oh, you're here to see that guy, are you? Exactly. But then I also spoke to, to Scott Davies, who I mentioned at the top of this. Um, who works for Epic Risk Management, and he's now a player manager at Slough Town. And he, you know, similarly to Stephen said, when he was going through his gambling addiction, you know, he did everything he could to kind of hide it from his teammates and from his managers because of that fear of getting dropped. The only thing that's keeping you going is playing football. And, you know, and if that gets taken away from you, what are you to do? But now that he's a manager and he's making that transition, I said, well, you know, if a player came up to you with, with some sort of issue, what would you say? And he said, I guess the brutality of football is that I'd want, to do everything I can to help that player, but I probably wouldn't play them for a few weeks because I know that they their focus needs to be on stuff away from the pitch. So if someone who's been through that process even has that thought, that gives you an idea of, I guess, football's culture. And, and that was another thing that my piece touched upon, this idea that football's very, very, I think the word Mark Williams, who also works for Epic Risk, used was, was macho man, that you just cannot open up, that any, pos any, any sense of vulnerability you know, you'll get eaten alive. And so players just kind of cram that down and push that down until unfortunately it hits, it hits boiling point. And by that point, it's often too late anyways. In some ways, in some ways, it's the worst possible environment, Stephen, isn't it? Because you've got the, the, the macho culture, which will still be in evidence in a lot of places. You've also got an awful lot of downtime. You've got a, looking for a release from pressures, which I know a lot of people in their working lives are, are trying to do, not just footballers. It's difficult to go out because people know who you are, so you don't get any 
privacy, I suppose, when, when you go out. So you stay indoors and you're searching for rushes and elation that you get when you play. I mean, the whole the whole cocktail is a, is dangerous. Yeah, it's a recipe for a disaster. Um, but there are people that, that manage to do it and, and, and live a good and healthy life. So there are really good examples out there, like you mentioned there. And, and it's important that we do touch on it, that the public have so many issues as well. Uh, more issues, there's more, there's more people in the public than there is as foot, us as footballers. Yeah. Um, so, but I feel like what I try to do behind one eyes is humanize footballers to actually say we're, we're the same. You know, there's, there's, there's three of us on this call this morning all three of us may have our own issues. You know, we're all in different jobs and different walks of life, but we all have our issues. And I just think that it's important um, that uh, what well, I see myself as, as, as I see is very important to open up and uh, I share my stuff. I'm, I'm often quite vulnerable or, or expose myself by sharing my stuff, but I, I just feel and I hope that it, it sort of inspires others to do the same and let them know that they're not alone because uh, it's, it's, it's very lonely. And are you all right? Today good. Today good. Yeah. yeah. Today good. Today I'm I'm feeling good. I'm I'm away with my family, so I'm enjoying that time. Um, and then yeah, it's it's often like is it day is it day by day, Stephen? Is it day absolutely. by you know? So today uh, I'm good. Absolutely, yeah. Um, there's been times where I'm I'm not afraid to admit this. It's it's hour by hour. You know, there's times where I'm 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 struggling, and that and that day could come after two years clean, two months clean, or. or, or well, hopefully one day between is clean, but but it, it doesn't really matter the length of time. It is literally day by day how I'm feeling in that moment. And there are times I have to break my day down and go, you know what, I'm feeling like crap today. Um, let's get through the next hour. Cool, I've got this with the athletic. Then at 11, I'll go for a walk and, and sort of break it down like that. That just doing the simple things, ticking them off. Um, because my depression and my addiction wants me alone, wants me isolated. Um, and that's where I can talk to myself and convince myself that it's a good idea to have a bet um and as i said that is my biggest worry with the punishment from the fa in in ivan's case that they haven't fought this through just quickly first of all you know i said it to you when we spoke before Stephen. but again thank you so much for for being so honest and if you look at the the wider concepts of ivan tony's career it is so important that he's got the the necessary support at the moment because he's just scored 20 goals in the premier league two two three years ago he was in league one so his rise through the divisions having dealt with that initial setback of his move to Newcastle not working out, has been quite impressive. Makes his England debut in March against Ukraine. You could probably argue he would have he would have potentially left Brentford this summer and gone to a top six club. It definitely would have been on the cards. He doesn't come back. I think it's until January the 17th he can start playing football again. There's this small tournament called the European Championships next June. So he's potentially got four months to try and do everything within his power to try and get back in to the England setup in time for that tournament. And if not, this punishment's impacted his career where it's potentially prevented him from making the biggest move of his career. Preventing him, or the impact of it, will then prevent him going to a European Championship in his first major international tournament. Huge, huge things within a player's career. So it's so important that people are kind of talking to him and helping him throughout this process so that he doesn't take a negative spiral. I, w- I would say it's very easy to go under this isolation and and this sort of public attention uh will make would make me want to go further and further and further away you know even more into a corner and if that happens um i, I worry you know I, I do i worry for worry for ivan the same way i'd worry for for any anyone else who's going through that so i just hope that as you said he does have a sport thankfully as we mentioned we've got two 
highly emotionally intelligent managers who, who are there to support him. Hopefully he's got good teammates around him as well and know a few of the boys who, who are great guys. So I'm sure, or I'd like to think that he does have that support. Um, and what a story would be, by the way, what a story would be for him to turn it around, come back it in was. January and make the Euros. So he's got a chance with, with, with an amazing manager in Gareth. He's got a chance and uh, I would love to see it. Uh, subscribe today then for just £1.99 per month for a year at theathletic.com slash football pod and there you'll be able to read Jay's special report into the extent of uh, gambling in football dressing rooms. That's it. We'll have another episode tomorrow. The Athletic.